Hello and welcome to an all new episode of the Black Artist Connectors Writers Group Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Kente, all the way live from Los Angeles, California. And I'm so happy to be here today. We have yet again another great episode for you. Joining me, as always, is my lovely co-host, the one and only Imani. How you doing, Imani? Hey, I am well. Hello to both you and our guest today. Hey. Hey, beautiful. All right. So we, I feel so good because I'm, I'm surrounded by uh, wonderful sisters, and I'm looking forward to uh, hearing, you know, your story. But uh, before we get into uh, your our guest story, Amani, uh, it's been a I guess it's been about a couple of weeks. What you been up to? Well, I went home to Detroit. Um, got to spend time with family. Um, I attended Fortified Detroit Writers Retreat, which was an incredible, incredible experience. Um, I came back to Vegas, um, recharged. My birthday was June first. Um, I did open mic at Soul Sessions. I featured the other night at the True Spot with some beautiful, beautiful spirits. I'm just full right now, and um, I'm I am excited for our topic for tonight. I'm excited for our guest, and I'm excited for people to um, just get some of this this good energy and this realness and truth that we we got to be about. Got to. You know, we have to say happy birthday to you because I don't think we've been on since your birthday. Uh, you know, and I, you know, I want to be like you when I grow up, uh, just traveling around doing your thing. Uh, how how did you spend your birthday? Did you have a good time? Um, I was writing because I had a deadline for today, um, and I knew we were coming back on the air tonight. So I just been I've been I've been on the grind. Um, and my turn up was Soul Sessions on Sunday night. That was my turn up. Um, the arts community here in Vegas would be what keeps me here. That and, you know, um, how it's integrated into education and political organizing because we, we just, we, we got to lean on some, you know, some Umoja unity, you know, across the board. That's right. That's right. So, uh, now, our guest tonight is a good friend of yours, so I'm going to hand the mic over to you, and please introduce her. Yes, it is my absolute, absolute pleasure to introduce um, a sister who just, she moves me in so many ways. Her business savvy, her personal commitment to um, organizations and movements and initiatives that she knows are needed and her willingness to help other people. It is phenomenal. Um, I am talking about Melanie Hill, um, founder and owner of Stronger Than My Struggles. Um, she's, a, she's a bad mama jamma. I, <laughs> I, I witnessed it um, because she is so transparent. I have witnessed it over and over and over again. Um, social media, you know, allows us inside glimpses into um, people's spheres, right? And our camera is always on, and when it's on, she's always spitting through. So I've watched um, maybe her write an article for somebody that a bigger publication picked up that led to being interviewed by not only that publication, but then also um, being invited to speak for like national organizations on issues that matter to women, period. And they definitely matter to black women because we are affected and afflicted disproportionately um, on, on so many levels across so many spheres. So um, it is my pleasure. And I'm going to let her talk about, uh, ask her to talk about Stronger Than My Struggles how it started, why it started, and the last 10 things that have been on her, her list this week that she's accomplished. Because <laughs> she'd be crossing them off like, just with black girl magic, just throwing glitter, just throwing glitter. And I know she is blessed. And I'm just really full that she is sharing her, her story um, with Writers Black Artists Connected and um, anybody else that is listening because writing is a tool for us to use as activists, as human beings, 
and spirits of change. And she does it just amazingly. I give to you Melanie Hill. <laughs> <laughs> hey, like I don't even know what to say after that. Thank you so much, beautiful. You're um, it's awesome to be here and thank you Kente for having me. So Stronger Than My Struggles came about um, about a year and a half ago. And I tell the story and it's it's weird because Stronger Than My Struggles changed my life. It, came, it became my mantra um, for getting through the day. So I lost my therapist, my best friend at the same time, two different people. And I didn't know um, how to cope. I'm one of those people who has um, mental illness and I have suffered from multiple diagnoses. Um, one is PTSD. I also suffer from depression, anxiety disorder, and then something called dissociative identity disorder. And for those who don't know what that is, it means that I have multiple personalities. So I've like died in this body multiple times and I wake up a whole different person. And that's kind of what happened when I lost my best friend and my therapist at the same time. I kind of crawl into a corner and when I wake up, um, life is different. And so that's how Stronger Than My Struggles came about. It was like, I guess I decided this time I was going to be stronger than that. Like, I didn't pick it. And so um, I try to tell people that I'm universally led because there's this spirit that talks to me. And for all I know, it's one of the voices in my head. I'm crazy. But there's this spirit that talks to me. And it tells me what to do. And um, it gave me the name Stronger Than My Struggles. It tells me, like, literally step by step what I'm supposed to be doing. And so I just follow the lead. And as long as I follow the path that's laid out before me, then I've been able to connect with people worldwide to um, not only have a business, but a, a movement that helps people that focuses on mental illness in the black community that shows that we can be stronger than our struggles, which is a universal thing. And it doesn't relate to just women or just black people or people with mental illness, but it is something that we all have is struggles and we can choose to be stronger than them because it's a daily battle. It's not something that's a, a get over it and deal with it thing. And I think that the daily struggle is something that we must acknowledge. And as long as we acknowledge it, then we can deal with it better. Absolutely. Um, what advice would you give to someone that is struggling right now with um, depression, um, but perhaps in their family, it is not something that is commonly talked about. Um, you know, you're supposed to suck it up. You're supposed to, you know, deal with it. You know, we don't, we don't, we don't really mess with therapists in this house or in our family. What would you say to that person? I would say get help. I would say that your family doesn't have to live your life, that only you do. And I tell people that therapy saved my life. Um, if I wouldn't have got seven and a half years of therapy for two to three days a week, I don't know where I would be because I was really screwed up because I spent so many years not getting help because of the stigma, because of my family saying, oh, these things aren't real. You're, you're not really depressed or you don't really have problems. Um, they said to me things like you just have selective memory. No, I have multiple personalities. It's a disorder. You know, they used to blame me for things that I couldn't remember. And here I find out that I have a memory disorder. And so, you know, you have to live for yourself. And I would tell them to not let their family confuse them and, and to live for themselves. Definitely. That's the sound of advice, you know, for anybody, but particularly for somebody that's feeling shame over something that is not their fault. It's just, you know. Well, mental illness is just like any other disease. It's like cancer. It's like HIV. It's like leukemia. It's it's like um, sickle cell. It's a disease. So it's no one's fault when you have a disease. Correct. You have um, amassed a number of businesses through Stronger Than My Struggles and social media and your ability to engage just, you know, groups, diverse groups of people and make them feel like, you know, they're having a one-on-one. -on -one. So talk about some of your business ventures that you have um, started and that are going quite well. Well, under the Stronger Than My Struggles brand, um, I become an eight-time author. 
well, seven-time author, because one of my books is another the Stronger Than My Struggles brand. And so I actually have um, Reflections on my Survi- of a Survivor, which Imani is my co-author on, and we published this in August of last year. And I just recently published my eighth book, which is Reclaiming My Time from the Nine to Five Grind. And um, I have another anthology, a poetry book, and some other books. And then I launched a publishing company. And so I launched STMS Publishing. And so we've published um, two authors under us so far, and we have another one coming out next month. And then um, I've launched my public speaking business and I've been booked by places like Stevenson College in Massachusetts and Micah here in Baltimore. And um, I have regular workshops and I have public events that we do. Like we had Crazy Like a Fox, which was a black mental health awareness event last month. It was awesome. And um, I've made much way with my coaching business. So I launched a coaching business in October and that's done really well. And between that and my speaking engagements, I've gotten into the media quite often, like Time Magazine even picked me up um, in February, which was really cool. Yes, that was really And I watched that one too. When all of these, with all of this stuff that happens, I mean, I would just be walking around like, bam! You know, um, to somebody that, you know, is toying with the idea of using writing as a tool to deal with trauma, (laughs) what would you tell them? Man, so I actually am um, creating a new program right now. It's called Turn Your Pain Into Your Platform right? Because that's what I've done essentially is I've turned my pain into a platform to not only help myself increase my income, but help others. And so what I see is that people are hurting. And for me, writing has always been a way of release. And I've done things like I created my Tuesday, we have a Tuesday uh, weekly therapeutic writing workshop. And so I have that weekly for the community. And that's a free thing that I offer, which has grown exponentially um, in almost the year that we've been doing it. And that landed me on television. Like it was really weird just doing um, my writing workshop because I was looking for a place to release and I couldn't find it. And I was always told if you can't find something, create it. So I created this, what we call a safe space. And um, we have people who actually drive from two states away just to attend this workshop on Tuesday. So it's pretty cool. And the writing has opened so many doors. Like when I thought I was just releasing my pain, I was connecting with other survivors. And as I connected with other survivors, I was building a platform and I was building a fan base and I was able to monetize that. To not just look at my writing as a way to express myself, but to write these coaching programs, but to write speeches that I now present to colleges and um, different organizations, to write articles that get picked up by major media, to write my way into pitching reporters so that I end up in the media. I've used my writing to open so many doors. Like just two weeks ago, I sat down with a gubernatorial candidate, Ben Jealous, at my office here in Baltimore with two of my coaching clients to talk about mental health awareness and resources and legislation here in Maryland. But I wrote my way into a position to be able to get a Democratic gubernatorial candidate to come to my office. Right, right. Connections are so important. Um, And with the book that I co-wrote with you, um, I have you know, just develop relationships with the other writers. Um, I am so impressed and moved by the work that they're doing to raise awareness around different issues, um, again, that affect Black women and Black communities. And um, it's about soul connections for me. I hate the word networking, so I never say that. I say, so I make soul connections. And they they feed me and I hope that you know I'm able to feed other people um, because that's how we keep the ball rolling. I'm very concerned about um, our babies in schools who are not getting the services that they need. Um, this is a human right and it is a right of any child who attends public school. Mm-hmm. 
and it's not being addressed and having um, subbed and as a substitute, you know, been a substitute teacher um, here in Vegas and in Detroit, I just see that, you know, I know that there are a lot of people working really hard that love these kids, but there are a lot of people who need to go on and retire or find something else to do. <laughs> the babies suffer and they, they they are already you know up against enough many of them i rarely um, go to a school that does not serve both breakfast and lunch for free because it's in a low-income neighborhood right so this is by design you know they have to eat even if they say they're not hungry i'm like uh, -uh go go get you something to eat you know because i know and they know that some may be at home later and something may not Go on, and, go on and eat. But we have to do more than just that that little bit that the government is supplying. So is there anything that you would say to a parent who, again, because of black, respect, black respectability politics is, you know, not making sure that their baby has all the services that they um, are entitled to? Well, there was a lot of things tied into what you just said. And there's a lot of different systems that need to be in place to address those things. But as far as what I would tell a parent, um, they have IEPs for a reason. A lot of parents are afraid of these IEPs, though, because they don't just put children with actual mental illness in these special programs, but they lump children with what they call developmental pro problems into these programs. And they decide what a developmental pro problem is, which means that they can say that your child is a behavior problem. And they'll say that's ADHD without having a valid reason to say it's ADHD. And so you have a lot of parents that are afraid of having their children falsely diagnosed or overly medicated if they do allow them in that system. Now, as a parent of a 17-year-old child who has mental illness and who has been um, a suicidal and a cutter, I've been through that system in the school. I was lucky. We connected first with um, a very good school therapist who was able to connect me with resources at John Hopkins and who was able to stay on top of my son. Even in the summertime, his therapist from the school was able to come to the home or go to his summer job to keep up with him. But he's in a different school now and he's in a different setting. And it's not the same, you know, and I can see that. And I can see that my son in a lot of ways got worse this year and that his attitude is better but his school is worse. He's failed this year, you know? And I feel like there's a ball that was dropped at the same time. These people are so overworked. And that's something that I don't think the community is even taking into account. But you've worked in the school, so you understand. These people are so overworked because they're throwing so many children in these programs that don't actually belong in them. Mm. They're so overworked yeah. and they can't yeah. keep up. It's a lot going yeah. on. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of state requirements. There's a lot of paperwork on top of, you know, just trying to get, you know, get what you're supposed to be getting to students in a 50 or 55 minute class period. It's a lot. So I want to talk about um, trauma a little bit and, um, we know that Dr. Joy DeGruy wrote um, post-traumatic stress. Help me slave out. syndrome. Post-traumatic stress. Slave syndrome. Post I'm a mm. time. Post-traumatic post slave syndrome. Slave syndrome. Thank you. PTSS. And um, you know, with her 12-year research that she put into writing this book, she determined that you know trauma gets embedded in the DNA, which would then mean that it is passed down already, predisposing um, people to certain conditions. I can believe that. I, I truly believe that not only did my mother suffer from um, mental illness and, and trauma um, that, that led to that mental illness, but I did as well. And my son, who has never experienced any kind of um, disparity in life, he's been very blessed, still 
has an undiagnosed mental illness that we can't figure out where it comes from because he's been so blessed. There, there is no trauma. There is nothing. And yet it's in him, you know? And so we, we have to acknowledge that it is something that is inherently passed down. Mm-hmm. And, 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 uh, or adding Adding to that, the oppressive systems that are in place right now that, you know, keep, that keep seeming to plague um, Black communities, Black families, Black people, Black lives, um, is, it, it gets heavy. So you, you put that with something that's, that may already be encoded in, in you if you um, came from enslaved Africans, if you are a descendant, which, you know, all of us are as black people, wherever we are across the diaspora, then we are already predisposed to some things. And then you take these systems that are in place, um, police brutality, white supremacy, um, school to prison pipeline, school to prison pipeline, redlining, poor housing, poor health care, food deserts, any and everything that should be a right for contributing people to this society um, are not a given for us, not even in 2018. Not especially not in Flint, who still where they still don't have clean water. And yes, and thank you and a chef for saying that, sis, and a shout out to um, New Era Detroit for um, all that they continue to do to make sure that um, citizens of Flint namely poor black people and other poor people and other people of color and poor white people, poor people who are being discounted, making sure that they still have fresh water. And that was, um, shout out to my um, mentee, my little sis, Renice Taylor, for making sure that she keep me in and, and, and we stopped by um, the water drop off. You, you know what's really interesting though about uh, Flint? I've said for a long time, way before the crisis, that there was something in the water because I know people from that area and there is a lot of bipolar um, diagnosis there as well as other uh, um, birth defects and stuff like that. And I and I always said to people I knew from there, like, I bet you there's something in the water and sure enough, mm. you know, it, it came out like that. So um, it's very interesting though. One thing that we talk about like different, um, things that contribute to uh, the way the society is, is the media. Uh, that's probably one of the biggest ones that we discount. And um, so as us, you know, being our small part of the media or our counter media, we like to put out positive imagery or tell a different story. Uh, my question to you, uh, uh, Melanie is, how important is that to you to counterbalance what it goes out about black women, black people, also about people with uh, mental illness? <clears throat> Good question. So it's extremely important to combat anything that the mainstream media puts out, period. The mainstream media is not our friend. The mainstream media is like um, the devil. Uh, it's kind of weird. Um, I'm not religious, so to think there's a devil is, but if that's what you there find something that's the worst thing, it would be that. Um, and that's because the same three people own almost every media outlet. And because you have these same three people who own almost every media outlet, you have these same three people that control the media. And when you have people who control the media, you have people who not only control the narrative, but you have people who control what stories you get. And when you have people who control what stories you get and what control the narrative, then you have people who control your life because your news is everything. And if you go by the news, which is what most people do, then you're now under mind control. And as we try to tell people, it's called TV programming because that's what it is. You're being programmed. And so a lot of that for me is to always dispel anything that the mainstream media is promoting because that means there's something wrong with it. And so, especially when it comes to black people, we have a, a way of thinking that we have a racial issue in America. I'll be the first to tell you we don't. And as a black woman, people say, what do you mean we don't have a racial issue? We have a class issue. 
I study this shit a lot. We have a class issue. And because we have a class issue, the mainstream media paints it as if we have a race issue because they need you to be distracted. <laughs> they need you to be focused on the few little racial issues that we have. And when I say few, I get that there aren't small, but when you take into account that there are billions of people in the world, they are few in account to what they could be if there was really a racial issue, but there isn't. It is a class issue. We've had class warfare going on for a long time, but because we're at the end of the totem pole, you know, that tends to be a lot of black and people of other colors. So it looks like a war on black people. It looks like a war on people of color. It's a war on class. Cause like Imani mentioned in Flint, poor white people are caught up in this too. Poor white people are caught up in this all over the place. They are. Yeah. But I'm, 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 I'm going to say that I think it's, it's, it's class and right. But we're going to respectfully disagree on that one. Yeah, I, I, I'm, uh, I was going to let uh, Imani start off with that one. I, I have to respectfully disagree as well with that. But, um, but you do have a, uh, a good point about the class part of it, because I do think some of it is to misdirection so that the, the person that's messing us all over it's uh we don't keep our eye on them no so, so we don't unite right it's to keep us from uniting and that's why they need us to think that we have all these racial issues because if we united against the people who are actually trying to hurt us we will see that we're not the minority that they think we are like they keep they're still telling us we're a minority people of color are not a minority like again these are things that they're using and it's 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 a war tactic they're using on us to divide us it's crazy, but it's war tactic. Trust me, it's war tactic. It's, it's definitely, it's definitely war tactics. That's for sure. Um, that that's that's a hundred percent true. But um, my question to you, as as a as a mother uh, who has a mental illness in in your in your life, and then when you find out that your son is going through that, um, how being that you've dealt with in your life, how much did your experiences translate to helping him overcome his? Well, you know, it's weird. Um, you would think that it would be able to help me help him more, but instead it just makes him pull away more, you know? And that's weird because again, I mentioned earlier, he has undiagnosed mental illness. He's been in therapy for years and seeing counselors and, you know, no one can figure out what's wrong with him. And I think a part of that is that there's nothing wrong with him. I think that my son mimics my illnesses. I think that he does this because he wants attention. And so I think that when I try to help him, he rebels because there's nothing for me to help. When I try to get through to him and we ask for years, what is the problem? No one can get to the problem because I don't think there is one. And so that itself is a problem that he creates issues. Like my son um, lied to his therapist and told him he kills small animals for fun. And that ended up having us in uh, parenting classes. He had to go to John Hopkins for six weeks and things like that. My son crushed up ibuprofen and put it next to a dollar bill and put it on the internet like it was a cocaine. You know, um, he doesn't have problems. He creates issues to seem like he has problems, which is a problem, right? But um, it makes me not able to help him because whatever he's doing, no one knows what the hell is actually wrong with him. Mm, that's deep. That's real deep. Yeah. Um, so my question to you is, what's the overall goal as far as uh, what you want to do with with, um, you know, your movement that you're starting as well as your businesses? Um, is it uh, just outreach? Is it direct contact? Is it more to be a media uh, person? Well, actually, it's kind of a, a mixture of all three. I've branded myself as an author, healer, and expert. And so for me, it's about traveling the world and being able to impact people not only directly by speaking to them, coaching them, and being able to listen to them, but also by building a platform online where people can connect with other people so that they can support each other because I can't be everywhere. And I want people to know that they're not alone. And as long as we can have these platforms where there are safe spaces and there's no judgment, 
then I think that I can help create a movement where people start talking about not just mental illness, but being sexually assaulted, um, having domestic violence in the home, having um, a parent who was drug addicted. The things that I suffered through, I talk about it all the time because people need to hear me too and know that it's applied to something else other than sexual assault. We have so many things growing up in a black household where we're told not to talk about it, where we're told things that happen in this house, stay in this house. And because we haven't had the outlet to talk or we haven't had the opportunity to heal, then we need to now create these safe spaces where we can hear other people say this happened to me. And so that's what my aim is, is to create spaces where not only am I able to connect with people one on one, but people are able to connect with other survivors worldwide. I have another question for you. Um, what if you're a person who's in a relationship with someone who has a, a mental disorder? Uh, what's some advice that you can help them, whether it be male or female? Wow, what a question. So um, this afternoon, um, I was moving some stuff. And I, I went to walk into my kitchen and there was a dead baby mouse on my floor. And I freaked out and I ran across the room and I ended up on top of a chair in another room. And I started rocking back and forth. And the guy that he was, I was with, he was like, what's wrong? And then he remembered that my PTSD is partially uh, rodent related. Um, I had a rat jump in my bed when I was a kid. And so I was in a really bad space and he got the, the dead mouse out and then he had to like rock me and hold me because I went into a dissociative state and it took him probably about 15 minutes to get me back to a normal place where I could even talk to him because I was that little girl in my bed again. And, you know, when we, I came out of it, I was telling him, you know, I'm glad he was here because he knows me so well. But this is why I don't have any long-term relationships because dating me is so hard because I have so many triggers and I have so many things that can set me off. And a lot of people can't handle that. They don't know how to deal with someone with mental illness. And it's no cookie cutter answer. The thing is how you used to have patience to do research, to figure out exactly what their illness is because each person's illness is gonna affect them differently. But at least if you can figure out what the normal signs are, then maybe you can have a little more sympathy and compassion when they're actually going through it. I would say try going to therapy with them um, because only then maybe will you understand what they actually go through. But there's nothing you can do but have compassion and if you're not going to be able to stick it out with them, don't go back and forth. Leave. Because you can really hurt a person with mental illness by staying in their life too long if you're not going to stay. Mm. I, real talk, though, if a, uh, if a rat jumped in my bed, I might have some PTSD, too. That's right. that's pretty incredible. Yeah. So, yeah, man. What, 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 what was that cat doing? What was your cat doing? I know you love your cat. Oh, no, no. That's when I was a kid, y'all. When I was a kid, the rat jumped in my bed. I've, no, I've been I terrified. Oh, so I don't even know. Maybe he killed the mouse. I don't know. There was a dead mouse. I don't know, girl. I don't okay. know. Okay. All right. You know, I'm seeing the whole know. thing. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm glad you're cool. I'm glad your friend was there. I um, am, too, because I wasn't here no more, you know? Right on. And um, I wanted to talk a little bit about our boys and they're being dissuaded from showing emotion and just holding stuff in and you know depending on um the household they grew up and what the relationships were like in that house they may you know have seen parents that were loving towards one another or they may have seen people just you know standing together to keep the lights on and that you know it, it's it's a difference so mm -hmm. a lot of, yeah so a lot of times our our, our boys become young men who have problems expressing emotion. Um, they, again, depending on what they've seen and what they've dealt with, how they've grown up, they may not know how to be respectful and that, you know, towards women, depending on the women that they, they dealt with. And because we have not had these conversations as a village yet, um, 
and and because porn is free and because you know we live in a sexual society i'm concerned about the messages that they're getting in terms of how to treat women how to treat girls Oh, see now, sis, now you know you putting me in a screwed up situation when you, 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 I, look, you talking to a former porn star. How you going to ask me to degrade porn here? Like, what you doing? Well, <laughs> come with some instructions. <laughs> my, my, my thing is, I hear you, my thing is. All right, check that. I got to answer rabbit hole. It's a rabbit hole. And you can get go down that mug so far that, I don't know, um. Whatever the biggest fetish is in the world, this becomes a normal thing. And so you have I got an answer. I got an answer for you. All right. All right. I'm going to start off with a disclaimer, though. Mm-hmm. My disclaimer is that no matter how you raise your kid, they're going to turn out who they are. My son is proof of that. They're going to be who they decide to be. And so when we say that we have a lot of these people who are growing up, a lot of these men who are growing up, not able to have these conversations, not able to express their emotions. And that's why they're behaving this way. Know that all are marked that way. Know that some of them had different opportunities, different conversations at home, and they still out here screwed up. That's my disclaimer. Now, as far as um, what they're seeing, porn is a part of the problem because it's so accessible. However, Porn has become everyday TV now, and that's a part of the problem. Porn is everyday TV. When you look at these reality shows, they're damn near having sex. Some of them are just under the covers. I remember watching stuff like Flavor of Love, and they were having sex under the covers. You have music videos where it used to be at night where we had the BET Uncut, and you could see things like the Luke videos and stuff. That's everyday videos now. That's what they see all day. When you look at their favorite celebrities and they're going to um, things like the award shows, they're showing up naked damn near. Some of them are naked. They got pasties on. So you have to look at the fact that while we want to blame porn, we have to look at, at porn has become so normalized that it's taken over everyday culture. And what we consider porn has gotten so outrageous because normal life has gotten to be porn. And so that's why the every the, all these fetishes are doing all this crazy shit because now people have to turn to fetishes to get something that actually turns them on because porn is everyday life. I, I that is a hundred percent true. Um, and uh, it, it's funny though that that you say that uh, about um, porn being everyday life. I remember there was a time where, uh, like you said, the 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 more X-rated stuff was hitting. And you really had to really do some real deep digging to find it. Now it's just so right there in front of your face. It's funny. I remember one time I was in a, uh, like, I remember when I was coming up, you didn't know the names of the porn people, really. You really didn't, you know, you might have seen their stuff, but you never, you didn't know who they were. Now they're just as big celebrities as people in Hollywood movies. Like I was at a, um, I was in a, um, uh, emergency room uh, years ago, a couple of years ago, and uh, a famous male porn star was in there, and I could tell the full, the packed emergency room. They all knew who that guy was, <laughs> so they were giving him that look, you know, like oh, I know you, you know, I know what you, you know, like that. So uh, it's funny how things have changed. But I want to speak to something that you said about the guys uh, not being able to exp- express their emotions. It's, I'm a man, right? So as a tricky thing, it's like you can show your emotions to a certain degree, but then it's too much. And you're going to turn off your your partner uh, as that's a man. Yes. It, that's not true. That means you're, you you're being emotional. Partner. Look, that means you picked the wrong partner. I'm going to tell you. So every Tuesday, I, I mentioned earlier, I have a free therapeutic writing workshop. And I have men who come to this workshop. And they cry like every Tuesday they come and they cry and they talk about their mothers and their past and all this and they feel safe. And I told women, um, I explained to women in my workshop recently that men have a hard time expressing themselves because y'all need to feel safe in expressing yourselves because you feel exactly the way a lot of men feel. If I'm too soft, it's going to turn her off and that there's a, a a whole way y'all have to get through to feeling safe. Like y'all feed us little tidbits of shit to see how we gonna take it and stuff before y'all really unload on us. 
And I think that women need to understand that men operate differently because we unload everything and we just be like, well, if he do that, then he's like me. And so y'all feed us stuff, but it's not, y'all are just like us and y'all should be able to be just like us. It's not feminine to have emotions. It's human to have emotions. No, but what did I say that was uh, no, but I think that women, we do, we don't want to leave y'all. We're not, you're not too emotional for us. I just think that women don't know how men work. So we don't have the patience to, to because y'all not so out there like us. Y'all drip it out and y'all dripping it out. It makes women impatient. Makes them impatient. Yeah. It's not they want you too emotional. It's every time they turn around, you come in with something new because y'all don't come out with it. Y'all drip stuff. Hello, sorry. Sorry about that. It's just women don't understand how y'all work. Y'all just different because we so used to, if we got a problem, we're going to lay it all out on the table. We want to deal with it, get it out the way. But men, y'all drip stuff. And because y'all drip stuff, it's like, it's not that you're too emotional. It's just every time she turn around, you're being emotional, but it's because you didn't get it out. Mm-hmm. All right. And I would add to that, um, that there is a, there's a strong need because when I was um, teaching in social science, in the social science arena, so that's psychology, cultural diversity, sociology, um, my students had to journal and I would take their journals home. They would, we had class on Tuesday and Thursday. I would take their journals home, bring them back and they would write, you know, over the weekend and bring it back that Tuesday. And at first the men and the classes were always overwhelmingly female, but the men would be like, um, Miss Imani, I'm really not like into like writing and writing my feelings and stuff. And I'm telling you that, by the second week, I was getting two, three, four pages um, from them. They only had to write three paragraphs a day, two to three. And if I didn't make belabored comments, you know, before I handed them back and, you know, make notes for them to read, they would be like, Miss Imani, you didn't even write my, you didn't even like comment hardly in my journal. What's up? So I, I know that this is needed. Um, they, because it's not taught in our culture very often. You are taught to be tough, be strong, be, you know, not show any weakness. You can't cry. Man, it's too much. And I think that contributes to stress when you're trying to, you know, you, you're six years old and you're being called a little man and you're the man of your house. and. Mm -hmm you got these manly responsibilities and then you have to go to school and be a little boy. But at home, you're taking care of two siblings and getting everybody ready for school because mama got, you know, she had to leave already. And you six. We send conflicting messages. We send conflicting messages. But we send that message to little girls as well. Little girls are doing the same thing. They cooking, they cleaning, they taking care of the homes at a very young age. They taking care of moms. Yeah, we send yeah. that we send that same message to our girls. I would like to see kids be kids for um, as long as possible. I agree. I think we are contributing to their stress, which will contribute to other things that you know may turn out to be something um, a, a mental health disorder because we have distressed them out. Now they're anxious. They got to please everybody. Um, and out don't know when to be a kid. Don't know when to be an adult. Getting popped in the mouth because they. They, they, they're being too grown, but they were just told to watch, you know, the, the two siblings. <laughs> we send conflicting messages. And I just, I'm, I'm concerned about the mental health of our babies, too. Indeed, indeed. And again, that, that goes back to the structure of the family. That goes back to the children being able to have to take over the, the roles of a, an absentee parent because mom is either working two jobs and she a single parent or they're having to help at home. And that's because we don't have the men in the houses like we used to. A lot of these kids that you see going through that, that's because you don't have two parent households. But then the government has constructed to take the man, the black man, especially out of the household. So when you have all of these benefits being available to the black woman, as long as they don't have a man in the household, you know, you can have section 
Section 8 and you can have all these kids, but your husband can't live with you, your boyfriend can't live with you, or we're going to raise your rent. Um, if your man is a convicted felon, he can't live in a house with his kids. If you go get a job, we're going to snatch your benefits before you actually get paid so you can't take care of your kids. Like There's a whole way that is set up to deconstruct the Black family and to make it so that the mother is a single mother who's too busy to raise her own kids. So again, it's a lot of systems that need to be changed and we can't put it on the family and the mother and the kid. And This is a system that has been enacted to make it this way. Amen. Which I knew you would. Because I don't want to disparage any parent because these black parents are out here killing themselves trying to raise their kids. Like I don't know if y'all caught the, the national news, but here in Baltimore recently we had a, a officer that was killed and um she was run over in a car by some little boys. And one of the mothers, she was crying her eyes out because she was saying she didn't even know where her son was at the time, but she had been begging the system to help her. Like the system had released him when she knew she needed more help with him. And I mean, now he's going to jail for life. He's 13, 14, 15. He's going to jail for life. He killed the officer, you know? And people are saying, where are the parents? This is a parent that was saying, I was begging the system to help me. And many have. And kind of ended up the same way. Well, they deconstruct your household. She's a single mother trying to raise multiple kids by her damn self. Her son is out here in the street. She can't take care of him. She got to raise the other kids. She's asking for help. And you let him back out on the street. He kills an officer and everybody says we are the parents. Right. And we're looking at, you know, a, a long, hot summer, a lot of places. And there are not a lot of places for um, youth to congregate. Recreation centers are closed around the country. They can't be in the mall after six without a chaperone. They can't be in the movies. That you know. After they six. can't barbecue. They can't barbecue. All <laughs> right. Can't take a nap. Can't go to Starbucks. <laughs> so we know we are being set up for failure right there, because mom and dad still have to work. They still have to work. So that's a lot of hours of unsupervised activity. That's right. Again, these are systems. And that's why we can't blame the parents because these are systems that have been enacted to make things these way, this way. So I'm hoping that anybody that 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 writes for themselves, if at all possible, to gather up maybe some kids on your blog, maybe your little cousins, and introduce them to some aspect of writing and literature. These are crucial times we're living in. And everybody we have all these stories of black people across the diaspora, people that need to meet, people that, you know, have been through similar things. And all of these stories matter because this is this is going to be history. And it matters because we need to survive. We need to still figure out how to navigate through these systems. And we cannot do it alone. We got to have some unity. If I say nothing else, we got to have some unity. So, um. It's getting really close to our hour wrapping up, but I wanted to ask you to talk about um, your upcoming project and how people can get involved. What is going on right now, man? You're not just wrapped up a lot of stuff. So what is going on now? Um, really nothing right now. So right now my schedule is like actually free. I'm on vacation for June and um. My next book, I'll be doing um, another anthology. I'll start looking for co-authors in August. Um, it's going to be one for domestic violence survivors as I prepare for Domestic Violence Awareness Month because I'm speaking at um, Fifty Shades of Blue again, which I did last year. And it's a domestic violence event here in Baltimore. Um, I have a lot of speaking engagements and workshops coming up, but um, nothing major. It's really peaceful right now, which is a blessing because my life has been a whirlwind. Um, so right now, I would just ask people to support Stronger Than My Struggles because what we're doing is we have workshops for the community, like my free therapeutic writing workshop every Tuesday. And um, I like for people to support us, maybe make a donation if they could. If not, just share the page. We're on social media everywhere. Um, you can hashtag Stronger Than My Struggles. Just support our mission because we're really a movement to help survivors from all walks of work, all walks of life worldwide, and um, always 
ask somebody how they feel and they mean it when you ask. Mental health is so important. And when we ask people, how you doing today? Not too many people mean it when they ask. When you ask that question, mean it. Because people who say fine aren't always fine. Yes. Kente, did you have another question? Uh, no, I just wanted to, uh, once again, thank you for coming on. And uh, I'm looking forward to everything you have uh, coming in the future. Uh, um, so is there any kind of secret talents that we may not know about you that uh, you may want to express with us? Yeah. Well, I'm a branding expert. That I am. So again, like I mentioned earlier, I used to do adult entertainment 14 months ago. That's all people knew about me because that's what I did for over 10 years. And the last 14 months, I've been able to transition and become a life transition coach where I have clients who have PhDs and master degrees and um, <laughs> they're um, all I have a high school diploma. So it's kind of amazing that all my clients have degrees. And um, I've been able to market myself to where I've made media all over the world, um, including national media like Time Magazine. And I think that with me being able to position myself and make March my first 10K month after just launching my coaching business in October, I think that was really awesome because it shows the real transition that I was able to do with my brand. And I've been able to do it for so many others lately. So branding is really my little secret thing that I do. Let me, let me ask you a question. Have you transitioned any of your, uh, your uh, fans from your other walk of life? Yes. Many, many, they love me. Like, and it's weird because even one who was a, a long time fan, but never like spent any money with me, started sending me donations now and told me that he always loved me, but he couldn't support me when I was doing that stuff. But now he sends me regular financial donations towards Stronger Than My Struggles. Oh, wow. Uh, that's beautiful. Very cool. I wanted to ask you um, about those earrings you have on, and I wanted to make sure that you give um, your links again. Yes. Ah, <laughs> uh, so I got these dope earrings from Imani. You know, I am a fan and supporter of her jewelry. Yes. Make sure you hit her up because she gets all the hottest. And um, of course, I'm at StrongerThanMyStruggles.com. We're on Facebook, Stronger Than My Struggles, Instagram, Stronger Than My Struggles. And on social media, on Twitter, you can just hit the hashtag, Stronger Than My Struggles. All right. Well, I thank you. Thank you, thank you my sister. I knew that um, you would bring it, bring the truth. You would keep it real. You would make it plain. And you did not disappoint. I appreciate your time, your effort, your energy, and all that you do. I'm coming to Baltimore, and you coming to Vegas. We got some workshops to do, some healing stuff to get on. It's gonna happen. I'm glad. Yes. yes, I'm with it. Thank you so much for having me, Imani, and thank you, Kente. Thank you, thank you. It was awesome. So we'll be back next week, Kente. We'll be back next week with an all new all right. episode. All new episode. We thank you for turning in, um, and I'm just gonna say right on, and remember to. Reach out to family, friends, and loved ones. Nobody needs to be, you know, going through the major struggles alone, not feeling like they have anybody that they don't have anybody to talk to. We bigger and we better than that. I love you. <laughs> All right, love you too. Yeah.